The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Christmas morning, 2020, the disturbing 911 call made to the Nashville Dispatch Center would be only one of many heard by Brandon Hall's team that day. I thought I'd seen and encountered just about everything, and I was just walking in for a normal Christmas at work, which is a a shift that I don't mind working uh, because it is so slow. But literally the second that my shift started, all hell broke loose and... You know, that's one of the incidents that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Join me now as we take a look at a terrifying event that shook the downtown core of Nashville, Tennessee. You'll hear how what was supposed to be a peaceful and joyful day was interrupted by one of the most bizarre and eerie sets of events we've ever covered. With brave men and women in uniform risking their lives to prevent mass casualties, leading some Nashville residents to call it a Christmas miracle. Since the 1950s, Nashville has been referred to as Music City, USA, a cultural and artistic hub for the music recording industry. But over the past few decades, it's also become known as a veritable boomtown becoming home to a slew of Fortune 500 headquarters. In fact, just last year, Nashville was ranked America's number one city for economic growth. And as is true with most cities, nobody knows a city quite like a lifelong local, which is just one of the reasons we spoke with Brandon Hall, a Nashville resident, 911 dispatcher, and the host of the true crime podcast, Music City 911. So I was actually born in Nashville, and I've been either in or around Nashville my entire life. Never left the state of Tennessee, and Nashville itself has grown and flourished the time I've been here. It was a still a decent-sized city when I was born, but in the past 10 or so years, it's just 
really grown. And I am a 22-year dispatcher for Metro Nashville Police, Fire and Medical, the Department of Emergency Communications. And I was actually a dispatcher on duty the day this happened. It was early Christmas morning in 2020, just before sunrise, as Brandon Halt prepared to make his way into work. And although he'd been trained for a day just like the one that was about to unfold, nothing could have prepared him for the bizarre nature of it all. So as I'm coming into work, my normal shift starts at 6.30. I'm walking in, and once I get inside the building, which is a very large communications building, I'm walking in and there's a lot of people up walking around and they seem a little bit more animated than normal. Usually when I walk into to work, most people are sat at their desk and they're just slowly taking phone calls. And in Christmas days I've worked in the past, they were just sitting and everybody very quiet because no one was on a call. No one was calling us for help that early in the morning. But everybody this morning was up walking around because there was something going on. At the time, I didn't know what it was. Brandon would soon learn that for the past hour, one of the most unusual series of events in the history of the city had been playing out. And it all started around 5.30 that morning, when 911 calls began pouring in, reporting a series of gunshots in the downtown area. Metro National 911, what is the address of your emergency? 166 2nd Avenue North. What's your name? My name is Kim. We're hearing gunshots on the street. Um, how many shots did you hear? We've heard it happen three times now, and each time it sounds like it's six or seven shots. And it's happened, like, it happened, and then, like, 30 minutes later it happened, and then, again, like, 20 minutes later it happened. So has somebody else already called? Yeah, someone else called. Uh, we do have officers. Actually, one's outside right. the building. Thank you. Yeah, I hear somebody out there right now. Thank you so much. No problem. You have a good day. Okay, bye. One caller claimed hearing shots fired inside a building at 178 2nd Avenue, right in the heart of Music City. The downtown area, especially, is one of the most popular areas. The main drag is called Broadway, and that's where you'll have all the nightclubs and honky-tonks and live music. And just off of that is 2nd Avenue, which runs north and south. And there are continuations of that same type of Nashville Music City vibe that goes up 2nd Avenue as well for a few blocks. So on 2nd Avenue, as you're going up from Broadway, almost all the buildings through there have been mixed use for a long time. You've got downstairs, you'll have the nightclubs or uh, some restaurants. And most of these places are anywhere from two to four stories tall. Back a long time ago, the upstairs portion of these places were just used for storage, pretty much. But now they have converted most of them into kind of flats and larger studio apartments, sometimes into multiple bedroom apartments. And it's just really kind of molded over the, over the years into a residential area on the, the top floors of these places. Metro Nashville police officer Tyler Llewellyn was the first to arrive on scene and immediately began investigating checking the bottom floor of the building, which at the time was a liquor store. He saw no indication of shots being fired, no shell casings, no bullet holes, and didn't hear anything either. The street itself was quiet, only a row of cars and a rather large RV, a Thor motor coach, parked along the curb. 
but there wasn't anything terribly alarming about that. Seeing out-of-towners visiting in their RVs for the holidays was pretty typical for that time of year. In order to gain access to the upper stories of the building, Officer Llewellyn needed an access code, which he was waiting for to receive from dispatch. In the meantime, Officer Brenna Hosey arrived on the scene to provide backup, which is when everything suddenly got weird. The chilling message being played from an unseen speaker system was unlike anything the two officers had ever experienced, with each of them doing a double take, checking to make sure they were really hearing what they thought they were hearing. A warning message coming from the RV Officer Llewellyn had noticed earlier, parked approximately 150 feet away from the entrance to the building at 178 Second Avenue. The recording blared over and over, coming from a PA system, apparently within the vehicle itself. 911, what is the address of your emergency? It's 2nd Avenue North. We have a recording out here saying there's a limited time to evacuate this area. On one on 2nd Avenue North in downtown Nashville, is that you guys? 2nd Avenue North, 2nd. There's a recording out there that's saying there's a limited time to evacuate this area. There's a large bomb inside this vehicle. Hmm. Um, let me check and see what we got. Can you please send the police up here? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm getting dressed. Can you please send the police up here? Yeah, we definitely can. 166 2nd like Avenue North. It looks like we have them I'm right sorry, out. I'm sorry, I'm in a panic. Okay, um, we do have officers out, out there, like right near 178, which is right. Right, are they reporting anything about this recording that we're hearing? Um, we got like a call about shots being heard. Yeah, shots, but now there's a, there's, there's a sound on there that says there's a limited time to evacuate this area. There's a large bomb inside the vehicle that is playing over and over and over outside. Gotcha. And I was just concerned that that's the police car saying that. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, um, I don't see anything in this call, but they are out there, so I don't know. Okay, yeah, have an okay thank you. I'm going to look out the window. Do you want thank to you. speak to an officer? No, no, no. I'm just going to get dressed real quick. <laughs> The creepy and alarming recording was an automated female voice repeating the same warning over and over again. This area must be evacuated now. If you can hear this message, evacuate now. Stay clear of the vehicle. Do not approach this vehicle. Your primary objective is to evacuate these buildings now. Officer Llewellyn grabbed his radio, calling in the cavalry and asking for more officers to be dispatched immediately. Four more quickly arrived. Turning their attention to the source of the mysterious message, the officer began inspecting the RV from the outside, but all the blinds were drawn, preventing them from peering inside. While they noticed there was no license plate visible on the vehicle, Officer James Wells noticed something else very strange. It appeared someone might be watching them. You got the hangover part, then you got the rearview mirror here, the camera set in between that. Operating under the assumption that the bomb threat coming from the RV was 100% real, the six officers at the scene immediately went into overdrive. Some cordoned off the area with their vehicles, ensuring no cars or foot traffic came anywhere near the threat, 
while the others raced into the Second Avenue buildings, knocking on doors and evacuating anyone from the apartments on the upper floors. Then suddenly, the message being broadcast from the RV changed. Now the computer-generated female voice started announcing, 14 minutes until detonation. It then began replaying the same looped evacuation warnings, with it changing back again every few minutes to the announcement of the time remaining. 14 minutes until detonation. For police, evacuating the area had become a literal race against the clock, not knowing which of the apartments were occupied, or even which ones were residential. The officer's only option was to announce their presence at every single door, in hopes of getting everyone cleared out safely through the rear side of the buildings on First Avenue. All in all, police officers were able to successfully evacuate people from six or seven apartments. Others had already left on their own after hearing the disturbing warning from the RV. In one apartment, police helped evacuate a mother with four small children. Body cam footage would later show officers discovering a homeless man asleep in one of the building's atriums. So you're not doing anything wrong, okay? You're not in trouble. But there is something curious happening now. Go for a And then, when everything seemed like it couldn't possibly get any more strange, somehow it did. The recording changed once again, this time being played over the speaker was a clip from the famous 1964 hit, Downtown, by Petula Clark, an upbeat song overtly brimming with positivity, an incredibly jarring juxtaposition against the unnerving backdrop of the imminent bomb threat. After the brief musical interlude, the recording switched back again to its repeated warnings, and the ever-present countdown to detonation was now getting closer and closer to zero. Five minutes until detonation. This had to be an incredibly tense situation for all the officers involved. Even so, the surreal nature and utter peculiarity of what was happening wasn't lost on them. That's so weird. That's like set of a movie. Like, purge? Yeah. Evacuate now. Once the apartments closest to the RV were emptied, officers began spreading out, continuing to pound on doors and clearing out other buildings nearby. While patrolling the area, one officer pointed out the significance of a building the RV was parked directly in front of. It's just a brick building, looks like it's, it's solid brick from top to bottom, no windows, and there's no markings outside, and this building houses most of the communications for AT&T for the Southeast. It's a hub and it's one of the most important buildings for AT&T here in the Southeastern United States. If you're walking up Second Avenue and you're on the side of the street where most of the restaurants and nightclubs and things like that are, you'd probably never even look over to the left side of the road to see the AT&T building I'm talking about. If you had anything related to AT&T at all, that building houses uh, most of the southeast phone communications equipment there. For the officers at the scene, the buildings themselves weren't their primary focus. For them, their only objective was to move out all the innocent civilians from the area. The same objective blaring from the RV. Evacuate now. And then, 
another countdown update was broadcast over the blaring speaker. Three minutes until detonation. Then back to the repeated warnings again, intermittently interrupted by the song Downtown. It was just before 6.30 a.m. when Brandon walked through the doors of the 911 Emergency Dispatch Center, a day that was supposed to be a quiet, easy Christmas morning shift. But he could tell as soon as he walked in that something big was happening. When I walked up, the dispatcher that was there, I asked him, what's going on? And he says, there is a RV downtown on 2nd Avenue. It's been playing a message for the past little while saying there's a bomb about to go off and there's been a timer on it. And then while I'm standing there next to him, he puts his finger on his headset and he stops talking for a second and he says, and it just blew up. And at that point, I said, all right, go ahead and hop up. Let me jump in here and I'll get going with it. The bomb had detonated at 6.29 a.m. on 2nd Avenue, Christmas morning, and the explosion was enormous, hurling debris high into the air a massive yellow-orange fireball expanding in all directions, while a huge cloud of smoke billowed above the skyscrapers that once dominated the skyline. The bomb had come from the mysterious RV, previously blasting the warnings. The damage caused looked like a scene from an apocalyptic movie, with the explosion demolishing the entire fronts of buildings directly across from where it had been parked with some buildings not completely off their foundations. Nearly every single window down the entire street had been shattered, the shockwave from the blast continuing through the buildings, blowing out most of the windows on the rear sides, raining glass down on First Avenue as well. In total, about 65 buildings had been damaged. So once the explosion actually happened, the very first thing for any of the uh, police officers on the scene, us uh, there at dispatch, we wanted to make sure the officers were safe. That's our first thing because they are the, per the people that are there to help everyone else. And if they get hurt, then there's fewer people there to actually help anyone. So immediately after the explosion happened, we did what was called a roll call. So each one of the officers that were involved, they had to sound off and give their status to make sure that they were okay. If you've been listening to the show for a while, I know you know I'm obsessed with playing Best Fiends. But I especially love playing Best Fiends during the holiday season. It's the perfect pick-me-up when I need a break from the holiday action. My current goal is to hit level 5,000 by the new year, but I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I'm currently at level 4,496, but I still got some time. Once you've downloaded Best Fiends, you can play it anywhere even without an internet connection. Whether you have a few minutes or a few hours, Best Fiends is the perfect puzzle game to lose yourself in because you're having so much fun. One thing I really enjoy about the game is how easy it is to pick up and play a few levels anytime I want. So why not join us? Download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. Plus, earn even more with 
$5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. At the time of the explosion, most of the officers had been separated from each other, leaving them now all to wonder which one of them might have been injured or even killed by the blast. During roll call, the six officers on the scene collectively held their breaths as they listened over the radio to find out if everyone was okay. And one by one, they all called in. By some miracle, everyone was alive. All of the officers were present and accounted for, with only a few minor injuries that could be attended to later, and they would have to be, because the officers still had very important work to do. So once the explosion actually happened, they said, have the fire department come down here, send pretty much everybody. Our code for it is Signal 10, which means come as fast as you can. We don't know the extent of the damage. We don't know how many people have been hurt. We don't know how many people have been killed. So with that huge of an explosion, we don't know a lot of things, but they want to get everybody started and half the block is on fire, half the block is demolished. There's a lot going into this. But there was no time to wait for the fire department to arrive. Officers on the ground needed to take action immediately. At this point after it happened, you know, a few people started coming out of their apartments. They were right there when it happened and they started walking down the street asking what happened. Some of the homeless population that were still pretty close by, they were also asking what was going on as well. They didn't know other than the explosion. They saw and heard it. And anyone who was down there at the time, their main task at that point is to try to keep the area clear, remove anybody that's in the area, take them out and keep them in a safe location away from there. As the fire department made its way onto the scene, pulling their trucks up to the bomb site, they quickly began assessing the damage, putting out numerous fires that had erupted from the bomb. But almost as soon as they did, gunshots began to ring out, forcing firefighters and police to back up and stay clear from the area. Anytime that we have uh, any type of thing like this, once an explosion goes off, one of your immediate things you think of is a secondary bomb somewhere. Sometimes things like this are made to draw in responders and other people to try to bring them in further and this may be a small version of what's yet to come. So they may actually try to bring some, bring all the officers in further and a secondary device goes on and it kills and or hurts many more first responders out there. So that's something that's always on the, the officers and dispatchers' minds. It didn't take long for police to realize that the source of the gunshot sounds weren't coming from a shooter hoping to pick off law enforcement or firefighters. Rather, the shots were coming from what police refer to as ammunition cooking off. This happens when live ammunition is exposed to extreme heat, like a fire, and then randomly set off, firing in no particular or predictable direction. It's believed the ammunition being cooked off at the bomb site had come from within the RV itself. And while fears of a secondary attack began to slowly subside, another major problem was brewing that would affect a much larger area than just Second Avenue. 
Remember the plain brick building without windows or signage that the RV was parked in front of? Well, when the explosion ripped through that building specifically, it destroyed all the telecom systems inside it, creating a virtual blackout of AT&T coverage for the entire region. So when the, this actually, the bombing actually hit, it knocked out communication for most of the Southeast. Several states were affected by this, and it was landlines, cell phones. If you had anything related to AT&T at all, it just wasn't working for, for several days. On a normal day, residents even going an hour without their phone service would cause havoc. Now add a possible terrorist attack on top of it, 911, what's the address of the emergency? I don't know what the address is. I work at Skarmahorn Symphony Center, and it was close to the AT&T building. There was a big explosion. 911, what is the address of your emergency? It is at 2nd Avenue and I believe Church of Commerce Street. There was just a massive explosion downtown with a huge fireball. I'm at the Encore Apartments on the 15th floor, just shook all the windows and just, yeah. Yep, they, oh, we're getting a bunch of calls on it. Yep. From there, it was just nonstop radio traffic from everywhere. It was insane for me, for the actual central downtown radio, for the fire department. It was nonstop the rest of the day. And for the people working the phones as well, you had the people who were able to call in. A lot of them were calling because they heard the explosion. Then later on in the day, once the news got out, everyone from out of town that have that has families here in Nashville, they were calling trying to check on their families to see if anything happened to them because they couldn't get through to them because the phone lines were down. Fortunately for the dispatch center in Nashville, their 911 systems had redundancies built in, allowing them to operate using other wireless and broadband service providers besides AT&T. But that wasn't the case for all 911 dispatchers throughout the region, with some smaller centers relying solely on AT&T. And that was a problem. Some of the smaller places, all they had was AT&T, so their 911 services were completely and totally down. Went all the way from Kentucky down into Alabama, I think Mississippi, Georgia, pieces of North and South Carolina, I believe. It was several states and they had to rely on just employee cell phones. So one employee would say, uh, go on to Facebook or, or a radio station or something like this and say the, the emergency lines are down. This is the phone number you have to call now. It's a cell phone or they would give out multiple numbers sometimes and that's how they would use to communicate with callers. When the glass stopped raining down, all the fires were put out, and the dust finally settled over the bomb site. The first question on everyone's mind was the same. How many casualties were there? The answer when all was accounted for was amazing. Not a single innocent person was killed in the bombing, and only three people were taken to the hospital to be treated for minor non-critical injuries. There was no question that the actions of the six police officers who took charge of the scene that morning had saved numerous lives. The questions then became, what on earth really happened here? Who was the bomber and why? Later that very same Christmas morning, a Nashville woman named Pamela Perry turned on her TV 
and saw the breaking news about the bombing. The FBI stands with the city of Nashville today in this very tragic Christmas Day event. This is our city too. We live here, we work here, and we're putting everything we have into finding who was responsible for what's happened here today. As part of doing that, there are investigative leads to be pursued. There's also technical work that needs to happen. And we're standing with Metro Nashville Police Department and our federal partners and our state partners to bring every resource we can possibly bring to bear to find out what happened here today and to bring those responsible to justice. The investigative leads, I'm sure you understand, is not something that we can talk about. As we continue to pursue every tip, I would ask the public to go to www.fbi.gov slash Nashville. It's www.fbi.gov slash Nashville, where an online tip submission process has been set up. Please tell us what you know. We need your leads, we need your help. You can also call 1-800-CALL-FBI. Call in tip information. If you know anything about what has happened here today, we'd appreciate your help. Pamela couldn't believe what she was seeing. She recognized the RV being shown in the news report. She'd seen it many times. But what disturbed her most was hearing that Petula Clark song, Downtown, had been played over the loudspeaker coming from the RV shortly before the blast. At that moment, she knew exactly who the bomber was, the man who played her that same song a lot. She knew she needed to call the FBI tip line immediately. Shortly after the explosion, Investigators discovered pieces of human tissue among the heaps of rubble, and it was now looking like whoever had detonated the RV bomb had indeed been inside a suicide bombing. Within 60 hours, DNA tests from the pieces of tissue recovered came back with a result, confirming that the suicide bomber was the same man who had been reported by police on Christmas Day by Pamela Perry, 63-year-old Anthony Quinn Warner. But when the identity of the bomber was confirmed and broadcast in the media, it only raised more questions. Almost all of the early reports regarding the bomber's identity said the exact same thing, that Anthony Warner was not on law enforcement's radar prior to the Christmas bombing. As it turned out, that wasn't exactly true. And the person who knew that most was Pamela Perry. Pamela first met Tony Warner when he was dating her sister, back in the 70s, when he was a teenager. Tony had spent nearly his entire life in the Nashville area, living in the suburb of Antioch, only about 12 miles southeast of downtown. During high school, his golf coach described him as three things, quiet, polite, and nerdish. He'd later be described as a man in love with how smart he was. After high school, Tony joined the Navy for a two-year stint before becoming a technician at a local electronic security firm. After getting his feet wet at the new job, he branched out on his own, starting his own company, becoming an expert with electronics, alarms, security systems, cameras, and even an avid remote control helicopter pilot. Basically, if it had wires or antennas, Tony knew how to use it, knew how to fix it, and in most cases, knew how to build it. Eventually, Tony became a self-employed IT consultant and had a number of clients around the area, most of them speaking very highly of him, one noting that Tony never exhibited any behavior that was less than professional. 
As time went on, Tony socialized less and less and became a virtual recluse. One of the only longtime friends that has ever been linked to Tony was a man he only basically ever talked to on weekends when they flew model helicopters together at the same park. But the only thing his friend ever noticed that was odd about Tony was that he was really into aliens and UFOs. And even though Tony lived on the same street around many of the same neighbors for decades, he was hardly on a more than a hey, how are you basis with any of them. He was quiet, polite, and almost always kept to himself. Neighbors noticed that Tony was almost always tinkering with things on his property, fiddling with the TV antennas on his roof, pressure washing this and that, installing security cameras, and building ramps for his pet dogs when they got too old to use the stairs at the front of his house. All in all, he just seemed like a nice guy who loved dogs and liked to keep himself busy with menial tasks. They never heard him once speak about politics or religion or even saw so much as a political sign in his yard. It wasn't until 2017 that Pamela reconnected with Tony. Her sister, the one who dated him back in the 70s, had died suddenly and unexpectedly. Not long after her death, Tony and Pamela struck up a close friendship with Tony coming over often to her house to visit. Pretty quickly after reconnecting, Pamela realized Tony held some pretty unconventional beliefs. He'd often rant about aliens, UFOs, the moon landing, and how 911 had been an inside job. At first, he seemed like just a harmless conspiracy enthusiast. But by 2019, things took a sinister twist. Tony let it slip to Pamela that he was building a bomb. Believing that he was using his RV as his bomb-making workshop, Pamela tried to get inside it one day to see for herself, but Tony prevented her. Then he told her that if she told anyone about it, you're going to be sorry. Panicked, scared, and on the brink of an emotional collapse, Pamela called her lawyer, Ray Throckmorton, and left him a chilling voicemail. In the message, she told her attorney that she was suicidal, and she told him about Tony and her suspicions that he was using his RV to build a bomb. Ray Throckmorton then called 911. Metro National 911, what is the address of your emergency? Well, I'm not exactly sure. Let me explain to you what I got. I'm, I'm an attorney here in Nashville, have been about 30 years. My name is Ray Throckmorton. I have a client who has called me this morning, and her full legal name is Pamela Perry, and she has made a number of, of threats about her own life. She has firearms. She has told me that this morning. She is supposedly with the firearms on the front porch. But I can tell you that if a bunch of police cars and ambulances pull up with sirens wailing and lights flashing, that she will shoot herself. Tell me exactly what happened, what she said. She has threatened to take her own life. And she has also given me information about another uh, resident of that part of Nashville who is, I think, also got some mental and emotional problems, who is allegedly building bombs in his house. And I have reason to believe that there might actually be more truth to what she's telling me about him than what she's telling me about herself. What happened next would later be revealed by police after they began their investigation into Tony Warner. 
On Wednesday morning, August 21st, 2019, South Precinct patrol officers responded to Seaford Lane on a report uh, from an attorney that a woman who lived there had made suicidal threats and was sitting on her front porch with firearms. Upon arrival, officers saw the woman did, did have two pistols on her front porch next to her, but they were in her, not in her possession and were unloaded. The woman said the guns belonged to Tony Warner and that she did not want them in the house any longer. During the officer's conversation with the woman, she said that her boyfriend, Warner, was building bombs in the RV trailer at his residence. The attorney said that Warner frequently talked about military and bomb making, and that he believed Warner knew that he was what he was doing and was capable of making a bomb. Out of concern for the woman's emotional state, officers called mobile crisis. They, they in turn, spoke with the woman and determined that she was in need of care. Based on uh, what they heard, South, Pre South Precinct officers responded to Warner's home on Bakertown Road, knocked on the door but received no answer. They saw the RV in the backyard. Uh, it was fenced off and they could not see inside the RV. Officers tried several times to get a response at the door. They knocked and knocked and knocked but never made contact with uh, Anthony Warner. One of the responding officers called the hazardous device unit and relayed the substance of the call. The following day, hazardous device unit officer Kevin Pollock began follow-up. On the 22nd, uh, Officer Pollock sent a narrative over to the FBI Nashville office to do a check on Warner for uh, prior military connections. Later in the day, on August 22nd, the FBI report came back that it checked the holdings and found no records whatsoever on Warner. On August 28th, the FBI reported that Department of Defense checks on Warner was all negative. During this time, Officer Pollitt reports that he drove by the home for several days and he had an officer on standby just in the event that when he, if, if he made contact with Officer Warner, they could do a knock and talk and try to get inside the residence or inside of the uh, mobile home. Officer Pollock continued trying to make contact uh, with Warner through no avail through its landline as well. On August 29, 2019, Officer Pollock phoned the attorney who was on the scene during a suicidal call. During that conversation, Officer Pollock said that he was attempting to locate Warner and that he was told that he was known to go on camping trips for weeks at a time. Officer Pollock recalled asking whether he could just take a look inside the RV parked behind Warner's home. Officer Pollock recalls the attorney telling him that Warner did not care for the police and I'm not going to be able to let him let you all do that. It's a quote. Officer Pollock recalls the attorney saying that Warner is capable of making a bomb but didn't believe he was doing so and didn't believe he was violent. Also during late August, our Specialized Investigation Division looked for any open source information on Warner and they found none. At no time was there evidence or reasonable suspicion that a crime was being committed and officers had no legal basis to go into Warner's fenced-in yard or home during August 2019. No additional action was taken after late August and to the best of my knowledge, no other reports or information about Warner came into the police department. 
we did not have the knowledge in August 2019, and we had no legal basis for search warrants or subpoenas based on what we knew at the time. After the incident involving Pamela, Tony continued his existence as a semi-reclusive lone wolf, taking frequent trips into nearby state parks, hunting for aliens, diving even deeper into esoteric conspiracy theories, like his belief that the world was being controlled by a race of reptilian lizard people who could shapeshift into human form. It's also believed that he harbored beliefs and numerous conspiracies surrounding the rollout of 5G wireless technology. Frequently, Tony compiled essays explaining all of his conspiratorial beliefs and his attempts at hunting aliens. He put them on flash drives and sent them out to the few acquaintances and friends he had. One of them was a server at a local Waffle House named Crystal Deck. The two had become friends in the months before the explosion, and in those months, Crystal witnessed a number of puzzling details that would only become all too clear once she learned about the bombing on Christmas Day. In the weeks before the bombing, Crystal saw Tony on his laptop fiddling around with a female computer-generated voice automator. He also made a point to pull out a CD and play the song Downtown for her, telling Crystal he believed the song had a, quote, significant spirit. Crystal described Tony in true Southern fashion that she knew his cornbread wasn't done in the middle. Basically, he was a bit of an oddball, but he was a friendly one, even a gregarious one, who helped her out from time to time with handiwork, as well as walking her dogs. He also implied he was dying of cancer, a claim that may or may not have been true. One of the things Tony frequently talked to Crystal about was going out on his own terms, and looking back, there were, in fact, signs Tony had been preparing for his own death, including getting his affairs in order. In November 2020, Tony signed a quitclaim deed to his house over to the daughter of a former girlfriend of his, a 29-year-old woman in California named Michelle Swing, for zero dollars. According to Michelle, she wasn't even aware the deed had been signed, and her signature appears nowhere on the document. Towards the end, Tony began giving away or getting rid of nearly all of his possessions. The only things left inside his house was an air mattress, a laptop, and some power tools. To his IT clients, Tony wrote letters announcing his retirement, even giving Crystal his car just days before the bombing. And during one of his last known interactions, a neighbor who'd made small talk with Tony at his mailbox asked if Santa was bringing him anything good for Christmas. Tony responded by saying, Yes, I'm going to be so famous. Nashville will never forget me. Knowing that Tony was somewhat of an IT expert and computer guru, the neighbor assumed he'd simply invented something that might make him a lot of money like a new app or something to that effect. On December 23rd, two days before the bombing, Tony mailed out a series of packages containing nine type pages of his conspiratorial writing, along with thumb drives of videos he wanted the recipients to look at. The packages contained no return address. 
The full contents of Tony's writings have never been publicly released, only bits and pieces. In the letters he wrote things like, The knowledge I have gained is immeasurable. I now understand everything, and I mean everything, from who, what we really are to what the known universe really is. Everything is an illusion. There is no such thing as death. Tony would be dead before the packages ever arrived in the mail. At 1.22 a.m. on Christmas morning, security cameras capture Tony driving the RV onto 2nd Avenue and parking it in front of the nondescript AT&T building. The first round of gunfire shots heard by area residents occurred sometime around 4.30. And even though we know there was live ammunition inside of the RV, it's generally believed that the gunshots heard throughout the neighborhood were most likely sound effects played through the loudspeaker that would go on to play the infamous warning messages later that morning. And that was one more detail Crystal Deck remembered about Anthony. The ringtone on his cell phone had been a recording of gunshots. The loud shots rang out again around 5 a.m. and then again close to 5.30 when the first 911 calls began coming in to report them. What was happening inside the RV during the entire event is anyone's guess. The presence of a security camera mounted near the front of the vehicle could suggest Tony had been watching the entire event as it began to unfold while inside the closed-off camper. However, any true insights as to Tony's motivations for killing himself or setting off the bomb on 2nd Avenue or parking his RV in front of the AT&T building died with Tony when the bomb went off. The most popular theory was that Tony had specifically targeted the AT&T building, especially when the public learned that Tony's late father had worked for Bell South before its merger with AT&T in 2006. He had some tie-ins with AT&T, and plus the fact that he had the whole, he had a conspiracy about 5G, which AT&T was really pushing for then. If he wanted to target something else, if he wanted to have the biggest mass casualty event that he could, he could have done it. Uh, he had the knowledge of it. So to, to be as specific as he was, where he parked it at, it seems like he had just the one plan. He wanted to both kill himself and damage AT&T. It's only natural for people to want solid answers for the motivation behind the bomb attack. The bitter reality is, we'll probably never know for sure. I don't think there's uh, going to be any way to actually nail down his motives. I think those went away with him. Yeah, he very well could have killed, I mean, hundreds of people with the size of the bomb that was there. Uh, if, if you were to move that and have the same thing happen at 8 o'clock on a Friday or Saturday night, there would have been dozens, if not hundreds of casualties right there. So he, he picked the time and date very specific to where there'd be the least amount of people out and... You know, and then he had the warning messages and every piece of this was highly calculated by him and, you know, very targeted down to the time date, you know, really to the very second, because I believe it went off right at 630 in the morning. The FBI's renowned behavioral analysis unit spent more than three months working with local law enforcement searching for answers investigating more than 2,500 tips, conducting 250 interviews, 
while analyzing all of Tony's numerous conspiracy-laden essays and the contents of the flash drive sent out shortly before the bombing. On March 15, 2021, the FBI concluded, Warner's detonation of the improvised explosive device was an intentional act in an effort to end his own life, driven in part by a totality of life stressors, including paranoia, long-held individualized beliefs adopted from several eccentric conspiracy theories, and the loss of stabilizing anchors and deteriorating interpersonal relationships. The FBI assesses Warner specifically chose the location and timing of the bombing so that it would be impactful while still minimizing the likelihood of causing undue injury. The FBI's analysis did not reveal indications of a broader ideological motive to use violence to bring about social or political change, nor does it reveal indications of a specific personal grievance focused on individuals or entities in and around the location of the explosion. Although the conclusion was that Tony Warner hadn't specifically targeted AT&T and that he attempted to limit the number of casualties, this hardly absolves him of any contempt for his actions. There are simply too many what-ifs that could have gone wrong, and it's nothing short of a miracle. Police were able to successfully evacuate the entire area without losing their own lives or even a single civilian suffering a serious injury. What also needs to be considered are the secondary ramifications of the bombing that took out AT&T phone communications and crippled numerous 911 call centers across the entire southeast region for days. We're talking about millions of people, you know, literally millions of people, any day at all at 911 where I work at in you know Nashville, we'll have people calling in because someone has just passed out and stopped breathing, someone has overdosed, someone has done something like this where it is an actual real life-threatening emergency and if they had no way to call to get through if they had no phone phone service themselves those seconds when they counted they tick away so for that person they may not have made it but there's no way to tell one way or another if help would have got to a place a little bit earlier if that person that passed out and stopped breathing or that person that overdosed if they would have made it or not Today, nearly two years later, the impact of the Christmas morning bombing is still clearly visible. The destruction from the bomb itself, it did destroy or impact a little bit over 60 buildings downtown. Um, that included the apartment buildings, that included the businesses, some of which we're now in 2022, been two years since this happened, and some of the buildings are still not repaired. They've had to tear down a few of the buildings that were there and even still to this day even though second avenue right there where it happened you can drive by where it where it happened you're not able to access parts of the sidewalk you know you can't go in front of the buildings there's still bar barricades that are there that is it's kind of sealing it off but you can still drive up the middle right there but the destruction was pretty widespread several buildings that were completely destroyed and other ones that had significant damage with Christmas right around the corner, we want to acknowledge and extend our sincere gratitude to the six officers who responded to 2nd Avenue that morning in 2020. Officer Brenna Hosey, Officer Tyler Llewellyn, Officer Michael Sipes, 
Officer Amanda Topping, Officer James Wells, and Sergeant Timothy Miller. Their professional and heroic actions, in the face of perhaps the most bizarrely sinister event in downtown Nashville's history, were nothing short of a Christmas miracle. And while the buildings may have fallen, and the city is still picking up the pieces from the destruction, every one of those officers were able to make it home to their families for Christmas. I want to thank Brandon Hall for his 22 years of service as a dispatcher and for sharing his experiences with us. If you'd like to hear more from him, check out his show, Music City 911. The world of 911 emergency dispatching is brutally diverse. One minute you can be talking with someone about parking violations. Uh, what's the process we are to take to have people towed? Because it's actually delaying the mail. And then all hell can break loose. Then the rest of the day is crazy. We could have murders. Hill County 911, what's your emergency? I just killed my children. Home invasions. He's in my house. He's in my house. I shot him. You shot him? He was coming up towards me and I shot him. Natural disasters. Tornadoes need to avoid us. I'm buried under a bunch of all my life. Even bombings. My show, Music City 901, will put you in the dispatcher's chair, put you ear to ear with the callers and responders, and keep you on edge from start to finish. I hope to both educate and entertain, as I'm a 901 dispatcher with over 20 years' experience. And just like dispatching, every episode is different from the last. Music City 901. Real 911 calls, real 911 dispatchers. Available to listen to on any podcast app. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.